Uh, might like to keep your pew Bibles open to page 906, because uh, we'll be looking at that passage today, because we're moving through a series of sermons on the final chapters of the book of Acts. Paul is on his way to Rome. We know that for sure, but how he'll get there, we don't know. It's uncertain. But we know that he's on his way to Rome because the Lord Jesus has his hand on this. He's appeared to Paul in a prison cell in Jerusalem and he said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify in Rome. So we we know that Paul is on his way to Rome, but at the moment he's in prison. And he's in prison because when he was visiting Jerusalem, he fell into the hands of the Jewish religious leadership who had long wanted him dead. They see him as a traitor to Judaism and as a teacher of heresy. But having been rescued from their hands by the local uh, Roman tribune, he, he ends up being transferred out of Jerusalem to the coastal town of Caesarea, in order for his case to be heard by the Roman governor of the region, and his name is Governor Felix. And so we heard in our text today about that trial. The religious uh, leadership, the, the religious establishment of Jerusalem is there at the trial. They are represented by the high priest, who is the highest authority in Judaism, and by a representative body of elders, and also they've hired themselves a lawyer, a professional rhetorician, someone they've paid probably very handsomely to speak articulately on their behalf with a view to securing a victory. And his name is Tertullus. Well, as was the custom, Tertullus begins his speech with a lot of flattery of Felix and of Rome. And this flattery is, as flattery always is, grossly hypocritical. Because Antonius Felix was known for two things. He was known for brutality and he was known for corruption. Uh, Certainly there was a time of peace while he was governor, but that's because he put down uprisings with such shocking brutality that it shocked everybody. And because of his corruption... Crime was on the increase during his tenure. So Tertullus begins with flattery, but it's grossly hypocritical. Then Tertullus makes three accusations against Paul. It's a threefold name-calling. Paul is firstly a troublemaker, literally a pest or pestilence. Secondly, he is a stirrer, literally a stirrer-upperer of revolt. And thirdly, he is a ringleader, literally a leader standing at the front, a a chief leader of the sect, the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, interestingly, this is the only time in the Bible where Christians are referred to as Nazarenes. Uh, Why that name? Well, probably because Jesus was Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus uh, um, referred to by the name of the town in which he'd been raised, Nazareth. And although uh, this is a a very rare way of referring to Christians in the West, it's actually been the standard way of referring to Christians in the Middle East from from the days of Pentecost to today. Indeed, you may remember back in uh, 2011 and 2012, um, if we can have the next slide, 
Thanks, James. Um, you may remember back in those days a time of intense persecution of Christians in Syria and northern Iraq. Um, you may remember that homes and businesses of Christians had a red Arabic letter N, Nun, painted uh, on them. And those houses and businesses were often either destroyed or confiscated. Uh, that N, or Nun, uh, stood for the Arabic equivalent of Nazarene. So still to this day, Christians in the Middle East are known as Nazarenes. But returning to our text and returning to, uh, to Tullus, his threefold accusation uh, to Romany is the whole point of his speech is to make the Romans worried, and they would have been very worried indeed. Tertullus is strongly implying that Paul is an anti-Rome insurrectionist, a direct threat to Caesar and his rule. Um, the speech makes uh, those accusations without offering any basis or facts to substantiate it. Tertullus just says, we have found. In other words, he's offering their conclusions without offering the observations upon which those conclusions are based. But we want to know when, where, how did Paul stir up riots or revolts? Well, actually, for us as, as readers of Luke's book, we know actually that indeed there has been unrest, strife, and riots commonly associated with the presence of Paul and his ministry. Uh, there were riots, unrest or strife, actually, in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, uh, Ephesus, and Jerusalem. However, for us as disciples with Paul on his journey through the book of Acts, we know that Paul is blameless. Without exception, these disturbances have been created by others in order to be a hindrance to his ministry. In all of these towns and in every instance, the preaching of the gospel threatened the interests of the wealthy and the powerful. So it was those guys who created the riots. And that, well, actually that's something that ought to be routine and unavoidable in gospel ministry. The gospel is a message of reversal. And when it is faithfully preached, it causes reversal. Things turn upside down. So then, we know that these accusations are dangerous because they can be linked with some basis in reality, but in fact are completely untrue. As to the charge that Paul tried to desecrate the temple, we know that this is completely untrue. The only truth in it being that Paul was indeed found by them in the temple courts, but in actual fact he was, he was there in obedience to the law and he was ceremonially clean. So we have this speech. Tertullus' speech turns out to be a mixture of flattery and slander. And it ends rather weakly with examine him yourself. Luke doesn't offer us any editorial judgment on this speech himself. I think he knows that, 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 that we know enough to form our own judgments and that we'll recognize for ourselves that it is sadly ironic that Tullus' speech represents the leadership of Jerusalem, the leadership of Judaism, insofar as it completely betrays the justice traditions of the people of God. The ninth commandment has been broken. They broke it. You shall not bear false witness. 
That's what they're doing. And the Old Testament hates both flattery and slander. Flattery and slander are definitively in the law and in the wisdom literature and in the prophets the tools of the wicked, the tools of the unrighteous. So then as we uh, hear this speech by this lawyer, we may recognize it as disappointingly familiar. But rather than just thinking, oh, this is so typical, we ought to realize this is profoundly evil. In response, Paul is polite, but he doesn't flatter. He does not answer slander with slander or accusation with counter-accusation. But he does offer facts, verifiable truths, when and where and who and what. In contrast to Tullus, his response is blameless and useful. From verse 14 onwards, however, it is clear that Paul wants to use the opportunity of this trial to focus on Jesus and the gospel. He's moving from legal defense into sermon. And we can all feel it. We all know it's coming. Governor Felix, he feels it. He knows it's coming. And Governor Felix, as one whom we are told is already familiar with Christianity, he cuts him off before the name of Jesus is actually proclaimed. So all we get to hear is Paul just warming up. However, Paul does make one really important point before he is silenced. In verses 14 and 15, Paul says that although his accusers have labeled Christianity a sect, he, Paul, believes everything that's in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and that he has the same hope as his accusers that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, a resurrection that precedes a universal judgment. What Paul is saying is that whilst his accusers, technically speaking, are the very highest echelons of the Jewish religious elite, it is actually himself and not them who who, who represents true Judaism. To believe in Jesus for Paul is to be truly and fully Jewish. For Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel, in line with all of the inspired scriptures of Israel. And it's actually important that we see that and that we understand it. In our day and age, mission to Jewish people continues continues today in Jerusalem and in the state of Israel and all around the world, including in this city, in the city of Perth. But we as Gentile believers in Jesus, when we present the gospel to Jewish people, we shouldn't allow ourselves or them to believe that accepting this gospel will turn them into Christians. It won't. It will turn them into Jews. What we call Christianity is isn't a sect. It isn't an offshoot. It is mainstream Judaism. Judaism in its truest form, the fulfillment of the hopes and dreams of all of the believers and all of the prophets of the Old Testament. And that message is first for the Jew and only thereafter, by God's grace, for us too as Gentiles. Well, Governor Felix can see for himself that the case against Paul isn't a matter of criminality, but rather it is a religious controversy that's going to be difficult to handle. 
So then on the one hand, he defers making a judgment until he gets to speak to Claudius Lysias himself. Hopefully that'll placate the Jews, because actually you don't cross the Jews of Jerusalem lightly. They have a long and glorious track record of ruining the careers of ambitious Roman governors. You don't cross them lightly. On the other hand, Paul is a Roman citizen. That's very awkward. So he allows Paul considerable freedoms and comforts as a prisoner. Because it's obvious. Just as it was, it was obvious to Lysias himself. He said it, Paul has done nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And then we get to the last four verses of chapter 24, and they are intriguing. We read that Felix and his wife Drusilla make good use of having Paul as their prisoner. And I mean, I guess, why wouldn't you? Paul is reasonably well known and he's obviously a tremendously impressive person, an absolute expert in the Jewish scriptures and a razor sharp intellect and a key personality in this new movement that is being spoken about by everyone everywhere. And of course, he's, he's, he's this guy with this astonishing testimony. Did you you hear about what happened to Saul on the way to Damascus? So obviously he's a famous guy. You'd you'd make use of him. You'd sit down and say, so how do we solve the world's problems? Well, that's enough for now. Uh, It it comes as no surprise that they're going to make the most of having Paul as their guest. Uh, By the way, uh, Drusilla is the youngest daughter of King Herod Agrippa I, Um, He's the Herod who appeared back in Acts chapter 12, the man who put the apostle James to death and who imprisoned Peter. Uh, But Peter uh, was released. He walked through. Um, Drusilla is the sister to Herod Agrippa II, who will enter our story in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 25. And back in the day, she was a famous beauty. Now, um, Drusilla is not yet 20 years old. She's 19 when all of this is happening. Her brother had given her in marriage when she was 14 to to the king of Emesa, uh, a city that today is known as Homs in Syria. Uh, However, very soon after that, Felix persuaded her to leave her husband and to marry him instead, promising her every felicity if she did so. And that's a play on his own name, because felicity is the feminine form of Felix, both names meaning happiness or good fortune. So they're delighted to listen to Paul, but actually listening to Paul proved to be a bit of a shock. Paul speaks to them on what it means to put your faith in Jesus. And he wants them to know that trusting in Jesus means repenting, renouncing sin, doing what is good and right, having self-control, turning away from evil and the sinful desires of the flesh, and living in the light of the judgment that is to come. As F.F. Bruce, a a biblical commentator, puts it, as as Bruce puts it, quote, Paul's distinguished hearers had probably never listened to such pointed and practical teaching in their lives as when when he talked to them about righteousness and self-control and the future judgment, three subjects which that couple specially needed to be informed about. No wonder Felix trembled and decided that he'd heard enough for the time being, unquote. And there there may be something of a surprise in this for us as well. Because we have our own ways, don't we? We have our own ways of introducing interested seekers to the Christian faith, two ways to live, Christianity explained, the Alpha Course. We have our, our own ways 
of introducing people to what it means to put your faith in Jesus. And we may have expected verse 25 to read differently. We may have expected it to read, as Paul talked to them about the cross and salvation by grace alone and justification by faith, dot, dot, dot. Or we may have expected verse 25 to read, as Paul talked about having a relationship with Jesus and being filled in power with the Spirit and how to discern the voice of God, dot, dot, dot. But he didn't. Clearly, Paul spoke about the high and pure ethical demands discipleship makes upon the one who would follow Jesus. That doesn't make our introductory courses wrong, nor does it make Paul's approach wrong. But it does remind us, I think, not to define gospel ministry too narrowly, something that I think church leaders in our age are a little bit prone to do. Well, in all of this conversation about the Christian faith, Felix was conflicted. He liked to listen, but Paul's message terrified him, just as it should have. Felix was also, we read, hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. Now, as to the possibility of a bribe, we might think of Paul as a poor, itinerant preacher. However, it is clear that he actually had access to means when he needed it. Uh, For example, writing and sending his letter to Rome, the book that we call Romans, that would have been an endeavor that would have cost him, in our terms, in the order of several tens of thousands of dollars. So Paul knew how to raise money when he needed to. So then if Paul had decided to buy his freedom, he could have no doubt raised a very substantial and impressive and persuasive gift. However, it's not until verse 27 that we realize that verse 26 describes a situation that went on for two years. For two years, Paul and Felix had regular conversations. This comes as a shock to us. Paul was in prison without formal charges being laid or the opportunity to clear his name for two years with no sight or sign of release on the horizon? For me, if I was Paul, I would have found the temptation to offer a bribe a pretty serious temptation. A temptation that hung around each day for two years. Under such circumstances, the human mind can be very creative with respect to rationalizing or justifying wrong actions, perhaps on the basis of expedience, let's be practical here, or on the basis of imagined beneficiary outcomes, it'll enable me to reach so many more people, or on the basis of custom, everybody does it. But of course, bribery was not an option. The Bible hates bribery. For a bribe blinds the blind of the wise, sorry, blinds the eyes of the wise, and twists the words of the innocent. Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 16, perverting justice. Proverbs 29. By justice, a king gives a country stability, but those who are greedy for bribes tear it down. Uh, bribery, corruption, lying, it all goes hand in hand. It's all part and parcel of the same thing. Um, how, can we, how can I um, describe how it's all the same thing? Well, actually, I'd, uh, this guy, um, an Indian historian, theologian, and philosopher, Vishal Mangalwadi, he does a very good job of it, um, he, talking about 
a, a, a stay with a friend in Holland, Vishal writes, One afternoon, Jan said to me, Come, let us get some milk. We walked between gorgeous moth-covered trees to a dairy farm. I'd never seen anything like this, a neat and tidy dairy farm with about 100 cows, but no human beings. The cows were milked automatically, and the milk was pumped into a large boiler-like tank. We entered the milk room, where Jan opened a tap and filled his milk jug. Then he reached out to the windowsill and pulled down a bowl full of cash. He took out his wallet. He, took, he drew a 20 gilder note. He put it in the bowl. He helped himself to change from the bowl, put that in his wallet, picked up the jug and started to walk out. I couldn't believe my eyes. Man, I said, if you were an Indian, you would take the milk and the money. Jan laughed. If this were India and I walked out with the money and the milk, the dairy owner would need to hire a cashier, wouldn't he? Uh, Who would pay for the cashier? Well, I, the consumer, would, and the price of milk would go up. But if the consumer, if me, if me, the consumer, if I'm corrupt, why should the dairy owner be any different? Why should he be honest? Uh, He would start to add water to the milk to make more money. I would then be paying more money for adulterated milk. I would complain, this milk is adulterated. The government must appoint inspectors. Who would pay for those inspectors? I, the taxpayer, would pay. But if the consumer, the producer and the supplier were corrupt, why should the inspector be any different? He would extract bribes from the supplier. If the suppliers did not pay the bribe, the inspectors would delay the supply of milk and ensure that the milk had curdled before it got to me, the consumer. Who would pay the bribe? Again, I, the consumer, would pay the additional cost. And by the time I have paid for the milk, the cashier, the water, the inspector, and the bribe, I would have very little money left to buy chocolate for the milk so my children would not drink the milk and would be weaker than the Dutch children. Having spent extra money on the milk, I would not be able to take my children out for ice cream. Now, the cashier, the water, the bribe, and the inspector add no value to the milk. The ice cream industry does. My corruption keeps me from patronizing a value-adding business. That reduces our economy's capacity to create jobs. Some years ago, um, Dr. Mangalwadi continues, some years ago I shared this story at a conference in Indonesia. An Egyptian participant laughed the most. As all eyes turned to him, he explained, We Egyptians are cleverer than these Indians. If no one was watching, we would take the milk, the money, and the cows. (laughs) So so then perhaps uh, Paul may have found it easy to justify and rationalize the offering of a bribe. I'm sure a bright guy like that, he could have rationalized it if he'd wanted to. But if he'd done so, he would have shot his witness because the integrity of his message is directly linked to the integrity of his conduct, just as it is for all of us. And how could he lecture others on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come and resort to a bribe? Of course he couldn't. 
This is, I think, a profound silent lesson for us in the text. Paul's integrity cost him two years in prison. But that was a small price to pay for the honor of his Lord who gave his life in order that Paul might be saved. Therefore, Paul spent two years ministering exclusively to just one couple rather than to thousands of others elsewhere. And that one couple, Drusilla and Felix, they don't seem to have repented or made a commitment. And in, and in, and in, in, in response to that, we, we may ask ourselves, was, was this worth it? Well, faithfulness is always worth it. But there is a reason why Paul may have valued this ministry more than we might first guess. And that's because he knows that he has been called to a ministry to kings. Now, not everyone's called to that ministry. Some are called to Cambodia. Not everybody's called to Cambodia. But some are, and some are called to to witness to kings. Jesus said to his apostles, on my account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. And about Paul in particular, Jesus said, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. The, the early church concentrated evangelism on kings and governors. Augustine of Canterbury converted England by starting with King Ethelbert, King of Kent. Patrick converted Ireland by focusing on the sons of kings. And Patrick famously refused to accept bribes from kings and so lived in Ireland without the normal ties of kingship and patronage and therefore in danger, in constant danger from criminals and outlaws because he refused to accept the, the, the protection of kings. In our age, the global church has possibly lost the significance and priority of evangelizing world leaders. Not everyone has the opportunity to explain the gospel to the Saudi royal family or to high party officials in communist China or to the Taliban. But some do. And we should pray that there is an effective witness in all of those places. And that that witness bears fruit. Well, that's enough for one day. Let's, let's recap. The integrity of our message is directly linked to the integrity of our conduct. The Bible hates flattery, slander, false testimony, and bribery, and therefore so should we. And let's pray for kings and those in authority. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.